Just while the boys and girls are slipping out, um, you could turn with me to our Bible reading for today, Luke chapter 22. It's a passage which we actually skipped over in our journey through these closing chapters of Luke's gospel because I wanted to hold it back for today. So uh, Luke 22, we're going to begin to read there at verse 7. And this is Luke's account of Jesus celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks for it. Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You're those who have stood by me in my trials. I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, 
Simon, Satan has sifted you, asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed that you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Then he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you'll deny me three times that you even know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they replied. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Keep that passage open before you folks. Um, whenever we came a couple of weeks ago to uh, chapter 22, we said that two plans were being unfolded, uh, uh, being set in motion or, or were clearly visible uh, at this point in the Jesus story. The first was the plan for the destruction of Jesus. And a couple of weeks ago, we thought a little bit about how that got in motion, how Judas went to, to betray him um, and uh, arranged for his arrest. And then last week, we saw that um, how the, the plan for Jesus' destruction really gathered momentum, how he was mocked and beaten, how he was uh, subjected to a, a gross miscarriage of justice. Um, so this plan for Jesus' destruction, it's going full steam ahead. This morning we're going to look at the other plan which is here in these chapters. It's one that was conceived before the creation of the world and now it's moving towards its climax and completion. Jesus' plan for the salvation of the world. Our passage this morning tells us how Jesus made arrangements to, to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And Luke gives us some carefully selected uh, highlights of the conversation over that meal. I had a quick look to see what's in there. So there's some talk about the meal itself. Then we have uh, Jesus predicting Jesus' betrayal. We have Jesus, Jesus mediating a dispute uh, among his disciples. And then we have uh, Jesus talking to Peter about his denial. That, that covers most of what's in that passage. We thought about some of this stuff a couple of weeks ago, so we, we don't need to dwell on it today, particularly uh, Judas's betrayal and uh, the stuff around Peter's denial. So I want to spend our time this morning looking at the other stuff um, around the, the, the dispute that arose and also what Jesus had to say about this meal that they were celebrating together. First, the dispute. During the meal, the guys had already, uh, I, I can sense a wee bit of tension around the table. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And they find themselves wanting to talk about that. Who, who, who's that going to be? Well, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be me. So there's already a, a sort of a 
conversation, let's say, going on. But then verse 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Put 12 men in a group for long enough and this conversation will either be implicit or explicit at some point in, in the, uh, the journey. So which one of us is the greatest? Jesus doesn't tell them off. He doesn't say it's wrong to want to be great. In fact, verse 29, he tells them, you're all going to be great. I'm going to raise you up. You're going to be leaders in my kingdom. I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me. There's going to be a meal that we're all going to eat at together. It's going to be much better than this one in this upper room here today. You're going to lead. You're going to judge the, the new people that I'm constituting. Wow, it's pretty good. I'm sure the guys all like that. Who, who doesn't like to be a, a leader? Who doesn't like to be in, in charge? If, if the guys listened to everything Jesus said, that they might not have been quite so, so sure. Um, Jesus points to leadership in general, the kind of leadership that they would be used to seeing around them, the kind of leadership they've seen actually during this period they've spent together in Jerusalem. Talks about leaders of the Gentiles, leaders who lorded over people, and he says, you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves, the one who's greater for who is greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. If you're familiar with the events of uh, the, this evening in the life of Jesus, you'll know that some of the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus washed his disciples' feet as part of that meal that evening. Luke doesn't choose to tell us that. But I think it, it makes for an interesting backdrop to this chat about who's going to be the greatest. So here are these disciples and they're, they're experiencing this very weird moment where their master, their boss, the one whom they've been following for, for three years, at some point in the evening, probably early on, before they maybe even come to the meal, he, he gets down on his hands and his knees, goes around the table, and washes the toe cheese and the dust and whatever else they have stepped in from their feet. This foot washing, this foot washing, it, it was common in the culture, but it, it was understood to be a very degrading thing. So there was a rule that said in a Jewish household, you couldn't ask a Jewish person to wash anybody else's feet. You couldn't demand that. You needed to have like foreign slaves to do that kind of work. A very, very degrading kind of work. So it's no wonder that none of the disciples have volunteered to do it. And it's no wonder then that Jesus, uh, or Peter resists. He doesn't want Jesus to do it for him. It's just a, an extraordinarily humbling thing for anybody to do. So if you look at Jesus' actions, 
and hold them beside this conversation about who's the greatest, you begin to see how the two inform each other. I think what Jesus is doing here, it's a, it's a piece of performance art. He is saying something. He's saying a whole lot to this bunch of his followers. The writer M. Scott Peck, he sees this as one of the most significant of all of Jesus' actions recorded for us anywhere in the Gospels. He says, until that moment, the whole point of things had been to get to the top and to stay at the top. And then in one moment, this person who's at the top, the rabbi, the master, the teacher, he suddenly goes to the bottom to wash the feet of his disciples. In that one act, Jesus symbolically overturned the whole social order. So whenever Jesus tells his disciples, yes, you're going to rule with me, we're going to share together, you are going to be great in my kingdom, it's a kingdom where the king says, I'll wash your feet. A kingdom where the king says, I am among you as one who serves. Over the last few weeks, I've been trying a, a new exercise of um, memorizing and meditating on, on scripture. And this verse, this part of this verse, this short phrase seems to have been right up there in the, the front of my mind. I am among you as one who serves. There's simply a whole world in there for me. If I'm a disciple of Jesus, if, if I've said he is my master, I'm his apprentice, I want to learn from him how to live to say the kinds of things that he says, to do the kinds of things that he does, then I need to be able to say that in every walk of life. It means that no task is too menial for me. It means I'll be happy to do the work that everybody else thinks is beneath them. It means that if I'm part of a community where most people are asking the usual question, how little can I put in and how much can I take out? I turn that around and I say, how much can I put in and how little do I need to draw from others? I am among you as one who serves. This is one I could follow. This is one I could call king. And I'd love to be more like him. So we've thought about the conversation that happened that night, the, the only part that we hadn't really dwelt on before. Let's zoom out now for the rest of our time and just look at, at that 
event as a whole, that meal, what, what was that? What was going on there? In Jesus' day and still today, um, the Jewish Passover preparations begin um, they begin on the night before you celebrate the Passover. What you do is you go around your house and you get all the yeast that's in your house and you put it in a pile. And then you go and you look around for anything that's been made with yeast or, or leaven, as, as they would have called it. And you gather that all together and you put that in a pile too. Because you, you do that the evening before, because at lunchtime the next day, you have to have gathered up all the leavened products in your house and you burn them. You destroy them. That's why, if you noticed in the opening verse of our passage, this is the feast or the day of unleavened bread. This is the day when that work is going on. People are clearing their houses. Um, they're getting ready for the Passover. During the afternoon, something else happens. Um, probably between about 2.30 p.m. and maybe 6 p.m., lambs are slaughtered. Many, many, many lambs are slaughtered for the, the celebration of the Passover meal. It's going to be eaten shortly after sunset. You don't slaughter your lambs six weeks before, package them and put them in freezers in the supermarket. You slaughter them and then later that day you come to them. So just to give you an idea of where we are, this, this really... The way we understand it in our church calendar, we have a Good Friday and we have a day before it. You're in the day before, what the church is traditionally called Monday Thursday. So that's the day we're dealing with here. And we have Jesus and his disciples making preparations. Whenever the dinner is ready, Jesus told his disciples, verse 15, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Why eagerly, Jesus? Why, why make a big deal of this? What's so important to you? Why is this Passover different than all those that have gone before? Verse 16. Because I won't eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. This Passover... This ancient meal that Israel's been celebrating every year for over a thousand years. Tonight, it's going to be filled with its fullest meaning. We're going to see what it's really all about. So what is the Passover? Um, I'm, I'm not going to assume that everybody here understands uh, at all or even fully what the Passover is. What, what is it? You've maybe heard of it, but maybe you're not sure. It's that meal that God gave his people to, to celebrate their rescue from Egypt. They'd been slaves in Egypt. He'd brought them out, and uh, we call it the Exodus. You, you, you maybe know the story. Uh, even if you don't know it from the Bible, you might know it from Prince of Egypt, the, the movie. God has, has given Pharaoh way more chances than he could ever have expected to, to set the people free. God had asked them time and time and time again and Pharaoh keeps refusing to set the people free. So God says, right, my patience is done. Now my judgment falls. And he promises to send judgment on the whole land of Egypt. 
But there is rescue, there is salvation for anyone who will take God at his word and do what God says. God gave Moses instructions for the people. He said, tell them this, take your best lamb, kill it, and put some of its blood on the, the posts around your, your front door. Whenever God's judgment comes and, and the, the blood is on the door, God's judgment will pass over your house and you will be saved. And that's what happened. That night, God's judgment did fall on Egypt, but it passed over those people who trusted in God, who'd had that lamb and put that blood on their doorposts. This was the biggest story in Israel. There are some people for whom 1690 is their big story. There are other people for whom 1916 is their big story. For Jews of Jesus' day, the Passover is their big story. So Jesus and his disciples are together remembering that story, having the meal that they've grown up every year having. But Jesus is saying, this is different tonight. This meal is finally gonna, gonna get its full meaning. We're gonna see what this meal's always been all about and we're gonna see it tonight. You see, there was a lamb fundamental in that first exodus under Moses. Jesus says, tonight, I'm the lamb. Moses brought the people out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus says, I'm a greater Moses, and I'm bringing them out of all slavery and out of death. Jesus is going to lead people, humanity on an exodus that they've been waiting for ever since Adam and Eve first drew breath. Folks, by the way, this idea of Jesus leading an exodus, that's, that's not something I'm making up. That's, that's something Luke's told us about earlier in his gospel. If, if you flicked back to chapter 9, you'd find a passage there where Jesus is in the company of uh, Moses and Elijah. It's called his transfiguration. And whenever Luke tells us what the conversation was, what are these three guys talking about? They're talking about Jesus' exodus because he's going to do a greater job than Moses ever did. His departure, his exodus. So what I want you to understand here today, everything that the Passover had been talking about for over a thousand years is now going to a new level. It's reaching its fulfillment in Jesus. So how does this work? How did Jesus come to rescue his, his disciples weren't slaves. They weren't in Egypt. They, uh, and neither are we, by the way. So what can it possibly mean for us today that Jesus has come to, to rescue us, that he's come to lead us on a new exodus? We say that we're not slaves. I wonder if we don't belie our own experience of life uh, and certainly belie what scripture says about us. The truth is we're not free. 
We're not free to live, first of all, even the lives that we want to live, but certainly not the lives that God made us for and that he longs to see us live. We're slaves to sin and its consequences in death. We, every bit as much as somebody who'd been in Egypt under Pharaoh, we need to be rescued. We need someone to take us from where we are and bring us out into freedom and life. Folks, whenever you hear uh, or think of the, the exodus from Egypt, I don't know about you, I, I think they did a brilliant job of this in the Prince of Egypt. It looked amazing. It, it just looked like a huge monumental event. These hordes of people coming out of captivity and into freedom. Well, see that? That's small fry compared to what Jesus is talking about in this room around this table with his disciples. Jesus' exodus is greater than Moses' exodus in every imaginable way. That rescue from Egypt was a rescue from physical slavery. Jesus rescues us from our slavery to sin. Sin, sin kills us, right? Sin's the thing that stops us from being the people that we were made to be. And Jesus says, I've come to rescue you. Isn't that amazing? So a second thing, the rescue from, from Egypt was for one ethnic group only, for Israel. This rescue, we have said it the whole way through this series, Jesus is the savior of the world. A third thing, that rescue from Egypt, it left people momentarily free, but actually sliding into all forms of slavery again. This rescue of Jesus isn't momentary, it's forever. Folks, if you know anything of what I've been talking about here today, what it is to be rescued by Jesus Christ, then you will love this meal that we now share together. This is our Passover. This is the place where we remember the lamb whose blood was shed, whose body was broken for us. This meal is the sweetest meal. And it means the world to us. Some of us still aren't sure about all of this. We don't know what's really for us. And there are a couple of quite different reasons for that. Some of us simply don't think we need it. We hear that Jesus says he came to save sinners, but we say, I don't need to be saved. I'm not a sinner. I'm pretty good. I, I, I know people worse than me. I don't need any of this. We live under this illusion that we're good enough and we'll take our chances when the judgment of God moves through the land. Others of us don't know that we're welcome at this table for a different reason, because it's too good to be true. 
we have this other idea that we're not good enough. As if that was the qualification. I've maybe never spelt this out as clearly as I'm going to just now. If you're somebody here today who says, I'd love to be at that table, I'd love to be taking that bread and that wine, but I'm not good enough, come on ahead. Because it's for you. You've understood it better than anybody else. So tell me this. Are, are, you, are you ready for this table? To take bread and to remember his body broken for you? To drink a wee cup of whatever kind of juice it is we're serving these days and to say his blood for me? You need to take a step. This is, this is what I want to leave you with. Everybody needs to take a step. Go back to Egypt. You're one of those families. The news goes out. Judgment's going to fall on the land, but it need not fall on you if you take a lamb, sacrifice it, and put its blood on your doorposts. You had to do it. You had to take God and his word and do it. Folks, we need to trust every bit as much in the Lamb who is for us in Jesus Christ. We need to accept that his blood's for me, that his body was broken for me, and we need to trust in him so that the judgment need not fall on us. Have you trusted Jesus Christ? I don't, want you to, I don't want you to leave here today knowing that you can and you must. I'm going to finish um, before we sing a song with a poem. Um, it, it's written by a local poet. I don't know if he thinks of himself as a poet. Um, David Curry is the associate minister up at Knock Presbyterian Church and I came across a, a piece that he had written uh, a few weeks ago and it sort of lands right where we are today in terms of this meal and, and what it signifies. A table was laid in a room in Jerusalem to remember the night of a thousand lambs slain. Of crimson red blood and doorposts all covered, the angel of death, their houses passed over. Yet Jesus, he takes it and breaks it, remakes it, saying that this is me that is broken. It's me that is slain. It's my, my blood poured out for the sin of all men. So we sit and we eat and we drink and remember with tears in our eyes the glorious splendor of the Lamb of God nailed to the tree, his crimson red blood setting us free.
And as surely we see, as surely we're given, so surely our darkest of sins are forgiven.